Hello, Monetization Nation. Today, I'm joined by Rel Bricker. Rel has a diverse work experience, ranging from being 6,000 feet underground in a mine to starting an education business that grew to have more than 4,000 students to spending years working in venture capital. Rel has listed multiple companies on international stock exchanges, and his financial services group has settled more than $3 billion in loans. For the last seven years, he's worked as a professional speaker, mentor, and coach, and his specialty is helping businesses and entrepreneurs keep things simple. Thank you so much for joining us today, Rel. Thank you, Nathan, and happy to be here. Can you start off by sharing with us something that you are super passionate about? I'm super passionate about keeping things simple, that that we overthink things. Um, we, we tend to, when, whenever you meet somebody who says, I have a great idea, but, and I have a great idea, but these are all the problems in the way. And my answer is, well, if you haven't dived into the pond and seen if it's okay to swim in it, how are you going to know? And so, you know, it, my book that I wrote in 2000, that I published in 2018, has in the blurb three lines that make the most sense that say, you know, so business is not complicated. Business is simple. Just dive in and adjust your course while you're moving. And so that's my superpower is that it's not about chasing bright, shiny objects. It's not about face running after every opportunity. It's about making a calculated decision, but a calculated decision can be based on one page of calculations. It doesn't have to be a 25 page spreadsheet. That doesn't often make sense because spreadsheets aren't the real world. And so it's just about looking at opportunities saying, yep, that's an opportunity. Let's explore it and see how it goes. That, that's what I would have to say has been the superpower. Can you tell us a little bit about a little bit more about your journey to become a, a coach and a consultant and, a, and an entrepreneur? Um, I guess when I started my first business at age 14, um, installing radios for people in their cars. Now we're going back to the 80s um, when a lot of cars never came with built-in radios. I worked in an electronics shop and we sold radios to people and they said, well, I don't know how to install it. And so I thought I was clever. And at 14, I was, which is when I started my first job as well, um, I would, you know, get them over to my house and install radios. And I soon realized that anything I wanted to do with my hands needed to be a hobby and not a business. And that my brain had to be what drove my businesses. Um, that I'm not a physically, I'm physically creative, but as a hobbyist. So um, I guess what, what really drove my career was when I worked on the mine, 6,000 foot underground, and, and as an engineer, I was a junior engineer, graduated from engineering. I was more interested in what my role was in making the whole organization tick than just my role. And I never understood it at age 20. I understood it much later in my life. And so, so, so that was probably the defining thing of my life is understanding that everybody has an incredibly important role in a business no matter what their role is in the business. There's a, there's a famous interview with John F. Kennedy where he was visiting NASA in 1962. So putting that into a context, the first moon landing was 1967. This was 1962. And he observed a cleaner sweeping and he, he stopped to talk to him as John F. Kennedy was known to do. And he said, what is your role? And he said, I'm here to help someone get to the moon. 
And, and that was a fantastic story because it identified that at NASA, they'd created a culture where everybody felt that they were part of the machinery in getting a man to the moon. And so th that was what I learned working on the mines is that I, I needed to have a bigger picture. I, I wasn't a person who was comfortable just doing my own job and going home at five o'clock in the afternoon. And that was my journey. And so I left the mines. I started my first business, which was a management consultancy, which in and of itself sounds really prestigious, but we were 25 year old MBA graduates who thought we could teach the world how to run their businesses when we'd never run a business. So a few flaws in that theory that, that came out, but nevertheless, we actually won some contracts just by sheer perseverance. Um, and then we found out that really we were not going to win any more contracts. Um, but we were told by an organization that maybe because we were two young MBAs, we should go and teach marketing. We should teach business. And so we started an education business in, in late 1990. Um, we were in the right place at the right time. And, and so sometimes business is about being in the right place at the right time. We were in South Africa. It was just after Nelson Mandela was released. He was released in February 1990. There was an emergent um, hunger and need for education, and we just fell into that market. And we're in the right place at the right time. We had 20 students the last semester of 1990, and by 1996, we had 4,000 students over six campuses. So we, 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 yes, we did a lot of marketing and stuff in the background to grow the business, but, but we, were, we had a vision of what we wanted to provide. And so all these things add to the value, you know, left that, went into venture capital. Um, uh, it was a great number of years in venture capital, mergers and acquisitions, came to Australia, joined a venture fund, listed that on the stock exchange here. And then they wanted me to move to the East Coast. I said, I love the West Coast and I'm staying here. Went out on my own, started a financial services group 21 years ago, 20 years ago now. And um, that's done 3 billion in mortgages. So that's the, the story. Seven years ago, I was asked to speak at a mortgage conference on how to build a mortgage business. And I went, that was fun. Maybe I should write a book about that and carry on speaking about building businesses. And that's how my career as a professional speaker and mentor and coach started. So um, again, purely by chance, somebody asked me to talk about um, success in, in mortgages and that morphed into success in business. Um, what is your best monetization secret or strategy? It's probably going back to basics. So the basics of relationships, because if I look at the mortgage business that's done over 3 billion in mortgages, we haven't advertised except for, I say, charity advertising where a charity comes to us and says they've got an event on where well, we give them a few hundred bucks for sponsorship. And, you know, you get an advert in their book, but we don't really generate business out of that. The truth of the growth of my business, how we've monetized our business is through referrals, is through asking for referrals, not being afraid to ask for referrals. When a client is happy, and not all clients are happy. I mean, you know, we've had clients who are unhappy because they've missed their finance. They didn't get the house they want. Um, they didn't get the interest rate they wanted, you know, any possible number of other complaints. But in the main of the five and a half thousand clients that I have, they've all been happy or majority been happy. 
And it just was about how do we monetize that happiness by asking them to refer other people. I love it. It sounds, it sounds simple. It's, 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 it's the five basic words of business, which is who do you know who? Who do you know who would benefit from my services? Who do you know who? And, and so often we're too afraid to ask for that. And so we've spent all this time and money generating a happy client. Um, we need to do more to do that. You know, we need to. Now, does that translate well into the digital world? I don't necessarily think it does. And I think that's the problem. I think the pendulum has swung. I think the basic principles of, of relationships and selling are a little bit lost in the digital world. And so it requires a whole new reset. You know, suddenly you're not just competing with a salesman down your street. You're competing with a salesman down the street, you know, 20,000 miles away. And so, so how do you reset that? And that's a, 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 an incredible challenge. I, I, have, I have struggled with it because I don't know the, I don't yet know the answer is how you stand out from the noise and translate these really simple business principles that are successful into the digital world. I mean, we're doing a lot of stuff in terms of digitals, but yet even in the mortgage business after digitally, we used to send out digital birthday cards. We went, no, with five and a half thousand clients, we still send handwritten birthday cards to five and a half thousand clients. Wow. Because we live in a world where no one gets mail anymore. No one gets envelopes or birthday cards in the mail. We all get e-cards. Okay, yeah, well, so that's you set you apart from others. That's exactly it. So it, it's in that search for setting us apart that that's where we've come. That's why we've come this full circle. What do you think is the biggest tectonic shift that is affecting business today? I think it's the pendulum has swung. So, so when I did, when I was a business school, uh, we learned about something called the random walk theory of stock markets. And, and, and it, it struck me and it's a basic economic principle that basically says the share price tomorrow is, is today's share price plus a random number because we live in an imperfect world. So an imperfect world, meaning some people see information as sell that share and some people see it as buying the share. Right. In, in simple term. When you apply that to the current world, I think we've shifted from not enough information or imperfect information because the random walk theory only works in a, in a theory of imperfect information. To We swung through a point of the internet where there was relatively perfect information, where there wasn't a ton of information, but there was just enough that people could um, make the same logical decision based on that information to a point of overload now. And I think that's been the biggest thing is now we need much better filtering systems to filter out the noise because there's too much noise out there. And so that I think is the big challenge for business is how do you stand out in a global market? Exactly the same problem. That's been the biggest shift. I think it's this information overflow. I, I, uh, you can always cut it out afterwards. If this is, I, I talk of ask holes, people who ask everyone's opinion and then look at 27 articles on Google right. and then still don't reach this, the right conclusion. Okay. That's the world we live in now is that it's no longer 
even the trusted advisor that you ask, it's Google. Google is seen as a trusted advisor and Google is non-specific besides for the first few ads. That's been the shift is where do people go to for their source of information, social media, as opposed to experts. And I think we have too much information and don't have enough filtering. Okay. Um, let's talk about your book. Why don't you tell us about bottom up culture? Yeah. So, so interestingly, and there's been even a shift in my own thinking since I wrote the book, but, okay. but I've always believed that, that culture is driven from both ends of our pyramid from, from the bottom, which is the, and if we call it the bottom and the top, uh, yes, it's, it's somewhat, um, insulting to those who are in lower ranks, rungs of the organization, but we need, we need a designation for it. So the, the truth of it is the actions of the majority of staff are what define the culture as much as the management or the C-suite would like to go to the mountain, you know, have a few wines, smoke a few joints and, and get creative and come up with this idea of what the culture should look like. The truth of it is that culture only makes sense if it's actually reflected by the actions of the team. And that's why culture is a bottoms up culture. The, 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 the management, the C-suite have to be defining the course of action, but really have to often take dramatic steps to make the, to get the team to come along. So since I wrote the book, I've been researching book number two, and I've interviewed 87 companies now over 25 countries about what makes their cultures great and what makes their cultures in my terms, what I call rich and robust and what makes them toxic. And so about 25 companies had people or staff members at companies who wanted to talk about how toxic the culture was, which was, that was a shock to me firstly. I did not expect people to put their hand up and anonymously that is, but we had interviews, but they, their names have been left out. But 25 people actually wanted to talk about how toxic the culture had become. But the rest wanted to tell me how brilliant the culture was. And what came out of that was that the two driving factors from, and this was not in my book, this is you know post, post book research, the two driving factors that make great cultures are purpose and values, not mission statements and vision statements and, and, and the traditional things, but it's having a purpose that's greater than the organization. And that's what, and, and a set of values that drives the actions of the team. So that ties into what I said, you know, in my book, which is that the actions of the team drive the culture, the bottom up. But, and if you have a set of values that everyone buys into, then that defines the actions of the team and therefore it creates a rich and robust culture. Thank you for sharing. Your book also talks about how we must give up control to gain control. What did you mean by that? Okay. So that was actually the working title of the book for many years. For, for, it took me two years to actually get it from concept to publication. Give up control. So when I started my mortgage business, when I started my education business, we did everything. As entrepreneurs, we did everything. We stood at the photocopier. We stood at the. We sat at the computer. We typed every bit of notes. We printed out the master. We photocopied them. We carried the projectors into the lecture rooms to do everything. Every single aspect of the business. We sat on the phones. We answered the phones. We did the queries. We did the marketing. Everything. And as soon as we started employing staff, and that was a big decision, 
you're a startup business, you don't have a lot of money, you don't have a lot of cash flow, you employ staff. And we did that in our education business, we did that in the mortgage business. And as soon as we employed staff and we empowered them to make decisions, empowered them to do things, so we gave up the control. And, and let's face it, entrepreneurs are control freaks, okay? I'm one of those. Um, and it took me a lot of, it took a lot of courage and takes a lot of courage to give up, to give up control. That's what it was about. And so it's about empowering your team members to, to actually know that they're allowed to mess up. So it's not about standing there with a whip saying, you better get this right. It's actually saying, here's enough space for you to get it wrong. That's how you give up control. And so I gave up control of the day-to-day -day things that I didn't need to do anymore. And it gave me control of my time to do the things I was good at, which is generating new business. So the entrepreneur is the most passionate person to generate new business. So if in a business, as it grows, if you give up, I talk about on stage, I talk about the, the $10 admin tasks and the $500 an hour revenue tasks. Well, why bother as an, as, as an entrepreneur with the $10 an hour admin tasks? Yes, sometimes you have to be able to do them. And interestingly, even when you give up control, you have to make sure the staff or the team members know you can do that job. You choose not to because you choose to direct your efforts to growing the business. And so it's very important that they know they can't pull the wool over your eyes because they understand where you come from. So that's what giving up control is about. It's about giving up control is empowering people with the ability to make a mistake whilst you go out and generate more business because you are the most passionate advocate of your own business. In your book, you have a chapter about tolerance and you include a quote from Nelson Mandela that says, no one is born hating another person because of the color of his skin or his background or his religion. People must learn to hate. And if they can learn to hate, they can be taught to love for love comes more naturally to the human heart than its opposite. You want to talk a little bit about, about that chapter and, and, and uh, your key takeaways from that. Growing up as a white kid in South Africa in a middle class, lower middle class suburb, um, we were so protected from the reality of the truth. We didn't actually, we knew that there was this majority population who were, who had no rights, who had no voting rights, who, who, who were, you know, living in certain areas, beaten up by the police, everything else that comes out of the, the apartheid, the apartheid era, you know, the, the 1976, the Soweto uprising, the Soweto riots, um, you, you got a perspective from the white media as, as, a, as, a, as a young teen. We never really got to know the truth. For me, the most amazingly eye-opening thing was as an adult taking my kids on a tour of Soweto 10 years ago and going to these places where I was never allowed to as a white kid go into in the first place and going to these places and understanding the history from another narrative. I, I was in... I was speaking at a conference in Vietnam and I went to the war museum in Vietnam and they call it not the Vietnam war, but the American war. Okay. 
it's called it, it is so they refer to the american war not the vietnamese war the, the vietnam war like americans would okay and so that that also highlighted to me that shift in perspective of yeah. of, of growing up in south africa and having a different narrative so what it did is so and interestingly our business started the year mandela was released our education business and if we were to say of our 4,000 students, probably 3,700, 3,800 were um, students of color from previously disadvantaged backgrounds who had been through a terrible schooling. Some of them were finishing school with an aggregate score, now different to American system, but an aggregate score of 35% over, over six subjects, an average score. So really horrible education system. Um, if you looked at the subjects they were doing, there was no depth to them. They were doing things like, you know, in, uh, in three languages, English, Afrikaans, and a vernacular language, and something like religion. You know, they, they were finishing school, clutching onto the school leaving certificate that had no value. And we took that, that raw putty, that raw clay, and molded it into something that had an equivalent of a, of a three-year junior college degree. So, so, so for me, that whole chapter about tolerance, I learned a lot more tolerance and understanding. But it, it, interestingly, again, at the time we were living through it, we didn't see it. That was the, you know, it was only on reflection that you learned things. I mean, one of the, one of the, the key moments in my understanding was in the mid 80s, long before Mandela was released. I was running a course for Rotary. Um, uh, for Rotary and for their exchange students going around the world. I was teaching them how to speak. I had just won the South African Toastmasters Championship and I was asked by Toastmasters to run this course for Rotary to teach their young students, so 17-year-olds, 16-year-olds, how to speak in public and defend apartheid South Africa, which is an interesting challenge in and of itself. But I took these students away. There was one student of color um, with us. It was the first time they were sending a student of color out of South Africa as an exchange student. And I got to the resort that we'd used every year that I had not run this before, but the, the group had run it every year before it used the same resort. We got to the resort. I was driving the lead vehicle. And as I got through the gate, or got to the gate, the gatekeeper didn't even so much as get out of his chair, looked into my van, saw this student of color, and screamed at me, and he uh, and I, I do this on stage, but he screamed at me and said, no blacks allowed, get out of here now. It wasn't even open for discussion. It wasn't, the, and to me as a 20-year-old, you know, middle-class white South African kid, that was my first real experience of apartheid. Um which is sad that it only happened to me at age 20 after growing up in the country. But, but that shaped my tolerance, that shaped my understanding, that shaped some of my you know, great friends now are in the diversity. So today we don't talk about tolerance and understanding, we talk about diversity and inclusion. And a great friend of mine did a TEDx talk and her talk was entitled, you can't have diversity without inclusion that a lot of companies just go for diversity, but don't do anything to build the inclusive nature of their organization. And so if, I was, if, if I've learned anything over the last 30 years in business, it's that you have to create diversity, 
And even my current team of 13 um, has six different country backgrounds, six different places of birth, um, three different religions. You know, it, it, it's quite diverse in its makeup. But it's about having diversity and inclusion together. You can't have one without the other. Thank you so much, Rel, for sharing your stories and insights with us today. Here's some of my key takeaways from this episode. Number one, the actions of the entire team drive the company culture. While the management can define that course of action, they have to get the entire team to come along. Number two, every member on our team has an important role. We should strive to create a culture where every team member understands the important impact that they have in the overall purpose of our company. Number three, if we give every employee and team member a purpose in our business, our employees will stay longer, have greater satisfaction, be more efficient and more productive. Number four, we should make sure every employee, partner and team member knows the importance of our customers. Number five, as we give up control and show our staff we trust them, we will probably see a lot more growth in our business. Number six, we can't have diversity without inclusion. We should make sure everyone feels comfortable, safe, and valued in our business, no matter of their background. If you want to learn more about Rel or connect with him, you can find him on LinkedIn or visit relbricker.com. And there's links to both of those sites in the blog post for this episode at monetizationnation.com. You can get a free ebook about passion marketing and learn how to become a top priority of your ideal customers at passionmarketing.com. You can also subscribe to Monetization Nation on YouTube, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and your favorite podcast platform. Thanks for joining me for this episode. I wish you success in building your company culture. Do you want to become a better digital monetizer? To receive great monetization stories and secrets, please go to monetizationnation.com and join free. And if you liked today's episode, please subscribe to the show and share it.